Disc 14. There were good television arguments, notably between Jenkins and Ben, and on the Labour side there were awkward moments when rhetoric got too fierce and Wilson had to intervene to rebuke warring ministers. Even Margaret Thatcher was out campaigning, for Brussels, of course, in a spectacularly hideous jumper with the flags of the member states knitted across her breasts. In the end, to the simple question, do you think that the United Kingdom should stay in the European community, the common market? 68.3%, or around 17 million people, said yes, and 32.8%, some 8.5 million, said no. Only Shetland and the Western Isles of Scotland voted no. Symbolically, Jenkins thought, the sun came out, and there followed a baking, almost cloudless few weeks. Ben instantly conceded full defeat, though privately considered the vote some achievement, considering we have absolutely no real organisation, no newspapers, nothing. Powell, however, warned that the decision was only provisional, and might be reopened in the future. As so often, his was a lone voice. More than thirty years later, the biggest question, both about Heath's triumph in engineering British membership and then about the Labour referendum, is whether the British were told the full story and truly understood the supranational organisation they were signing up to. Ever since, many of those among the 8.5 million who voted against, and younger people who share their view, have suggested that Heath and Jenkins and the rest lied to the country, at least by omission. Had it been properly explained that Europe's law and institutions would sit above the ancient Westminster Parliament, it is said, they would never have agreed. What is the truth? The Britain in Europe campaigners can point to speeches and advertisements which directly mention loss of sovereignty. One of the latter read, 40 million people died in two European wars this century. Better lose a little national sovereignty than a son or a daughter. Yet both in Parliament and in the referendum campaign, the full consequences for national independence were mumbled, not spoken clearly enough. Geoffrey Howe, as he then was, who drafted Heath's European Communities Bill, later admitted that it could have been more explicit about lost sovereignty. Heath talked directly about the ever closer union of the peoples of Europe, but was never precise about the effect on British law, as compared, say, to Lord Denning, who said the European Treaty could be compared to an incoming tide. It flows into the estuaries and rivers. It cannot be held back. Hugo Young, the journalist and historian who studied the campaign in great detail, wrote, I traced no major document or speech that said in plain terms that national sovereignty would be lost, still less one that categorically promoted the European community for its single most striking characteristic, that it was an institution positively designed to curb the full independence of the nation-state. There were, of course, the explicit warnings about lost sovereignty delivered by the No campaigners, among the more populist arguments about food prices. They came, above all, from Enoch Powell, Michael Foote and Tony Benn. Powell's language can be gauged from a speech he gave to political journalists in the Commons while the bill was being debated. He lamented that the Commons was perishing by its own hand. Week by week, month by month, the House of Commons votes to divest itself of what it had gained through a length of time not much shorter than the history of England itself. Foote, though, recovering from an operation and so partly out of action, wrote in the Times that the British parliamentary system had been made farcical and unworkable.
Historians, he said, would be amazed that the British people were urged at such a time to tamper irreparably with their most precious institution, to see it circumscribed and contorted and elbowed off the centre of the stage. Ben, confiding to his diary his reaction on the possibility of a Europe-wide passport, showed how much the left's instincts could chime with those of the right-wing opponents of European change. That really hit me in the guts. Like metrication and decimalization, this really strikes at our national identity. All these arguments were made in the press, despite its overall bias, and repeatedly in public meetings and broadcast debates. So it was not as if people were not told. The truth revealed by all opinion polls is that sovereignty, as an issue, did not concern the public nearly as much as jobs and food prices. By later standards, the position of Parliament was not taken terribly seriously in public debates. It may be that sovereignty is always of absorbing interest to a minority, the more history-minded, politically aware, and of less interest to the rest, except when a loss of sovereignty directly affects daily life and produces resented laws. In the 70s, Britain's political class was not highly respected, and Europe seemed to offer a glossier, richer future. Though the pro-community majority in business and politics did not strive to ram home the huge implications of membership, they did not deceitfully hide the political nature of what was happening either. It was just that when the referendum was held, people cared less. The argument would return, screaming, demanding to be heard, 15 years later. Power ages. As to the rest of Wilson's short final government, much of his energy was spent on foreign affairs. Despite American disapproval, the Labour government began the final withdrawal from east of Suez, giving up any pretensions of British influence in the Far East. The empire was formally over. A scattering of individual outposts and impoverished islands too weak to enjoy independence were all that was left. A few last governors in places like Hong Kong and Bermuda. In the Middle East, British pens and British fingers had drawn many of the lines on the map. Transjordan, the new state of Israel, Iraq, and all that uncertainty went. It went after guerrilla war and partition among the lemon groves of Cyprus, after gruesome murders of British soldiers in the Holy Land, a nasty little colonial war in Aden which left behind a Marxist and Soviet satellite. It left an unstable and unpopular king in Iraq, soon overthrown by military coup, leading to the regime of Saddam Hussein. In Iran, the British-backed Shah was many years later overturned by Ayatollah Khomeini's Islamic Revolution. The decades that followed have been awful ones for the region, marked by major and minor wars, the regular use of torture, assassination, repression, censorship and suicide bombings. The Middle East, rich in oil and history, has become the world's most dangerous zone, and many of the decisions that made it so dangerous originated in Europe, including London, as well as in Washington. There remained that strange half-life empire called the British Commonwealth, an illogical, world-straddling organisation that embraced republics such as India, despotisms and democracies, slavish admirers of Britain and frank opponents of London, as well as all the former white dominions which retained their loyalty to the crown. The Commonwealth was not a coherent policy-setting organisation, particularly after Britain decided to join the European Economic Community. Her members often had diametrically opposed trading interests. 
When it came to defence, some were firmly non-aligned, even at times leaning to Moscow or Beijing, while others, such as the Australians, looked increasingly to the United States, not Britain. Time and again, on issues such as apartheid South Africa, or Rhodesia, or the misbehaviour of newly independent rulers, or questions of migration, the Commonwealth would fracture or embarrass London. Lacking an army, trade agreements, or common views, it seemed to many a pointless organisation, fit for nothing more than acrimonious summits and regular athletic games, which functioned as a low-rent version of the real ones, the Olympics. Was it kept going merely out of sentimentality, or to give the Queen something to do? At least it has done no harm and kept different parts of the world in contact. Outside football, it is also the last English-speaking worldwide organisation not dominated by the Americans. Wilson spent much of his domestic energy on resisting the attempt by Tony Benn, by now his bugbear, to introduce a socialist economy via the National Enterprise Board. Ben hoped that this would be a generously funded body which would take over a large range of companies, successful and unsuccessful, bringing state ownership and direction into the heart of the economy. Wilson, by now clearly to the right of his party, was equally determined that this should not happen. He had his way. When it eventually arrived, the NEB was a weak, ill-funded repository for lost causes. British Leyland in particular... Ben's enthusiasm for workers' control continued to amuse and infuriate most of the other ministers and civil servants he worked with, and he confided in his diary that he felt as if he was trying to swim up the Niagara Falls. He was particularly keen about cooperatives and took up the cause of the Meriden Motorcycle Factory, struggling to survive under workers' control. He was much excited by what he took to be its Chinese communist atmosphere, I described our industrial policy, and then they sung, for he's a jolly good fellow, which was very touching. It wasn't only Wilson who thought Ben's socialist affection for cooperatives and nationalisation was out of time. Jack Jones pinned him down over lunch at the Westminster restaurant Lockett's to warn, Nationalisation is no good. People don't want it. Management in nationalised industries is very bad. Ben explained that he wanted to take over other firms, including the Scottish Daily News, and challenged Jones about British Leyland itself. The fiery trade unionist, to Ben's astonishment, suggested selling it off to General Motors. The final phase of nationalisation produced little except heartache, though the struggling Chrysler car factory at Linwood in Scotland was kept going for a while. These were truly the last days for planning and public control, which had been so widespread immediately after the war. We should see Ben as a traditionalist in this, as much as a radical. Later, Healy would brutally sum up his contribution as a minister to British industry. There were only two monuments to Ben in power, he said, a uranium mine in Namibia he had authorised as energy secretary, which helped support apartheid, and Concord, used by rich people on expense accounts and subsidised by poorer taxpayers. The only planning agreement actually existing when he left office was the old farm price review, chaired in my time by the Duke of Northumberland. Monuments for this last Wilson government were few. One was the radical refashioning of the failing pension system by Barbara Castle and her team, with the State Earnings Related Pension, or SERPs, which linked pension to rises in earnings or prices, whichever was higher. 
It was notably generous, particularly to women whose pension rights had been whittled away by years of caring for children or elderly relatives, and in allowing people to claim a pension based on their best twenty years of earnings, not necessarily their final earnings. Castle had won a reputation as a battler for feminism much earlier. In 1968, during the celebrated women's strike at Ford's plant in Dagenham, the women were operating sewing machines to upholster car seats, but were paid only 85% of men's wages for doing the same job. After Castle intervened directly, the company closed most of the gap, and other women took action round the country too. She had also intervened to stop the Commons voting male MPs better pensions than female ones. Though Castle always jibed at being called a feminist. And had underestimated the cost of serfs, so that the earnings link would eventually be broken again by the Conservatives to keep the price down. It was a rare civilizing reform which stuck, at least for a decade. Meanwhile, Wilson, quietly preparing a scandalous resignation honours list for his cronies, and muttering about moles, plots, and the possible activities of South African and British agents, left future British governments with one final gift. Working as secretively as Attlee, he authorized a vast, expensive modernization and replacement of Britain's nuclear deterrent, Chevaline, the cost of which would rise from a planned twenty-four million pounds to more than a thousand million pounds within a few years. He then retired as he had always said he would at sixty, leaving much of his cabinet utterly astonished and London awash with rumours. Power ages as well as corrupts. And Roy Jenkins speculated that perhaps he had faked his birth certificate and had been ten years older than he admitted all along. It would certainly have explained his precocious rise and precocious retirement. But Wilson was still wily enough to give his preferred successor Callahan, I'm making way for an older man, a tip-off which helped him steal a march on the rest, including Healy, who only heard the news from Wilson in the gents' toilet before the cabinet meeting when he formally announced it. Wilson would retire to see his reputation sink steadily downwards as his memory started to go. For such a pugnacious and fundamentally decent man, whatever his political failures, it was a sad way to subside. Peasants' Revolt, one, the right. The underlying political story of the middle and later seventies would not, however, be played out mainly in Parliament. It is the story of how, across the quivering body of a profoundly sick country, two new rival forces emerged to fight for the future. The first came from the right. In the middle of June 1974, something unusual had happened. A politician said sorry. He did not say sorry for something in his personal life, an error of judgment, or even a failed policy. He said sorry for everything. He said sorry for what had happened to Britain since 1945 and his party's role in that, and his role in that party. The serial apologist was a haggard, anguished-looking man. The son of a rich London businessman, he had risen to become housing and then health minister, and had been until then a conventional-looking Tory. Under Macmillan, he had ordered the smashing down of old terraces for new tower blocks. Under Heath, he had spent heavily on a bigger bureaucracy for the NHS and higher social security levels. Now, Sir Keith Joseph was quite literally wringing his hands and rolling his eyes with mortification. 
There had been thirty years of interventions, good intentions and disappointments, thirty years of socialism under both Labour and the Tories. I must take my blame for following too many of the fashions. Joseph's conversion to free market, small state economics had the force of a religious experience. Crucial to it would be controlling the amount of money in the economy to keep out inflation, which meant squeezing how much was borrowed and spent by the state. He had joined the Tories in the early 50s, but had not been a conservative, he said. I had thought that I was conservative, but now I see that I was not really one at all. This kind of thinking would lead within five years to the Thatcher Revolution and the wholesale rejection of the Heath years, taking the economic ideas of intellectuals who featured earlier in this history right into the centre of British public life. Other fellow travellers were professors, Americans, or a few Powellite Tories outside the mainstream of the party. But Joseph was different, a former cabinet minister with close and direct experience of government. With his Centre for Policy Studies, he was the rainmaker, the stormbringer, the Old Testament prophet denouncing his tribe. Joseph argued that Britain, by the mid-seventies, had a fundamental choice to make between a socialist siege economy or a breakaway into proper liberal capitalism. In effect, Ben or Joseph. He could not have formed his ideas without the libertarian and monetarist thinkers of the fifties and sixties, men we met earlier. During the Tories' years in opposition, from 1964 to 1970, he had educated himself in free market economics and was soon using as his speechwriter the violently spoken, irrepressible Alfred Sherman, an East End boy from a left-wing family who had fought as a machine gunner in the Spanish Civil War before swinging right round later and becoming an insistent right-wing critic of the British way. It was well said of Sherman that by the 50s his enthusiasm for the free market put him as much on the fringes of Macmillan's Britain as communism had put him on the edge of politics in Neville Chamberlain's Britain. But to Sherman's disappointment, when Joseph returned to office in 1970 as Secretary for Health and Social Security, his radicalism went into hiding again. He forgot his enthusiasm for introducing more private money into health, and Sherman took to describing him dismissively as a good man fallen among civil servants. But the defeat of 1974 had shaken Joseph. With other monetarists, he began a thorough rethink of the Heath years, culminating in a shadow cabinet post-mortem when they argued that the early radicalism of 1970-71 had been right, and the subsequent U-turn a disaster. Heath blankly refused to listen to, or at any rate heed, the attack. Heath's haughty assessment in his autobiography was that Joseph had resumed a friendship with a person called Alfred Sherman, a former communist, and undergone what he liked to call a conversion as a result. This failed to cut any ice with the great majority of his colleagues, though he did them the courtesy of listening. In fact, many Tories were beginning to listen. With Joseph were Geoffrey Howe and the quiet, watchful figure of Margaret Thatcher. Early on, Howe warned, I am not at all sure about Margaret. Many of her economic prejudices are certainly sound, but she is inclined to be rather too dogmatic for my liking on sensitive matters like education and might actually retard the case by simplification. There were other new radicals, such as the Powellite Tory MP John Biffen, the young economics writer Nigel Lawson, and a crowd of journalists and academics. 
Here was an intellectual analysis, hard and uncompromising, which excited a generation of new recruits to the party, while it repelled Tories of the comfortable Macmillan persuasion. Macmillan himself said of Joseph that he was the only boring Jew I've ever known, and later there would be much snide muttering about the men Thatcher learned from and worked with. Hayek, Sherman, Joseph, Lawson and Friedman. The truth was that Jews were prominent in intellectual thinking on the right, as on the left, bringing opposite lessons to Britain from the disasters of continental Europe. A serious commitment to ideas and old-fashioned attitudes to education gave them their unique influence in politics. Thatcher was open to the ideas, ready to listen, unprejudiced. Many traditional Tories were not. In the winter of 1974-75, to 75, after Heath had lost his second successive election, there was no such thing as Thatcherism. She was expressing her public support for the policies of consensus, whatever her developing inner feelings. She backed intervention in the housing market and had queried council house sales. There was no sign that she would become leader. Heath was anyway stubbornly determined to stay on. He insisted his supporters, who included most of the well-known Tories of the day, back him. Paul suggested 70% of Conservative voters wanted him to stay, yet there was deep dissatisfaction on the Tory benches in Parliament. A city slicker, Sir Edward Ducan, who chaired the backbenchers' 1922 committee, began to take soundings about challenging Heath. He was backed by the war hero, Tory MP and arch-intriguer, Airy Neave but Neve soon pulled out. Joseph stepped up to the plate before making a catastrophically ill-judged and offensive speech in which he seemed to suggest that working-class women were having too many babies and should be stopped because they were degrading the gene pool. This finished the man Private Eye was already calling the Mad Monk. So who could the right find as a candidate? If Heath had realised that two successive election defeats meant he really had to go and had he allowed other Tory moderates to prepare campaigns to replace him, Mrs Thatcher would have had no chance. Had Joseph not made a disaster of a speech, she would have been committed to backing him, and so would not have stood herself. Had Ducan stood, the brilliant campaign manager Neve would not have worked for her. Many Tory MPs were persuaded by him to vote for her because she had no chance, as a way of easing out Heath then more serious candidates could stand. It was a brilliant ruse. On the 4th of February 1975, she shocked everyone by defeating Heath in the first ballot by 130 votes to 119. She then went on to beat the also-rans easily. A current of right-wing free-market thinking that had been gurgling almost unnoticed underground since the 50s would break ground in spectacular fashion, changing Britain forever. Josephism became Thatcherism. Few of the Tory MPs in what was called the Peasants' Revolt realised quite where their new leader would take them. For the next few years, supercilious smirks and patronising remarks from Wilson and then the new Prime Minister, James Callaghan, would be her lot. And then she would show them. Beyond Pop The 70s was an extreme decade. The extreme left and extreme right were reflected even in its music. Drawing neat lines between popular culture and the wider world of politics and economics is a dangerous game. 
Any art follows its own internal logic, and much of what happened to British music and fashion during the 70s was driven by the straightforward need to adopt, then outpace what had happened the day before. Clipped, hard-edged styles appear on the street to mock floppy, romantic ones, and then it happens in reverse. The high-gloss extravagance of the late Ted's is answered by the neat, fresh, cool look of the mods, which will be met by the psychedelic extravagance and hairiness of the hippies. They are answered by the supermod, working-class cool of the first skinheads, though in due course wannabe Ziggy Stardusts will bring androgyny and excess back to the pavement and playing ground. Leather-bound punks found a new trump card to offend the older rockers. New romantics with eyeliner and quiffs challenge goths. Huge baggy trousers are suddenly in, then disappear as quickly. Shoes, shirts, haircuts mutate and compete. For much of the time, this game doesn't mean anything outside its own rhetoric. It simply is, and then isn't. Exactly the same can be said about musical fads, the way soul is picked up in northern clubs from Wigan to Blackpool to Manchester, the struggle between the concept albums of the art house bands and the arrival of punkier noises from New York in the mid-seventies. The dance crazes that come and go, often the motivation for change is boredom. We have heard enough of that three-minute noise, and it's time for something shorter and louder, or longer and quieter. Nothing lasts long. Like fashion, musical styles begin to break up and head in many directions in this period, coexisting as rival subcultures across the country. Rock and roll is not dead, nor is Motown, when reggae and ska arrive. The Rolling Stones and Yes carry on oblivious to the arrival of the Sex Pistols and the Clash. Every individual who drank in popular culture feels a sudden rush of remembrance of days past when a particular band, song or look is revived. But we should not fool ourselves that emotion equals meaning. The life lived and its soundtrack are not quite the same. Yet, in this musical and stylistic chaos which runs from the early 70s to modern times, there are moments and themes which stick out. Perhaps the most important statistic to hold in mind is that between the early 50s and the mid-70s, real disposable income, what people had in their hand to spend, taking inflation into account, exactly doubled. Between Lonnie Donegan and Led Zeppelin, as it were, people became twice as well off. Yet from 1974 until the end of 1978, living standards actually went into decline. The long working class boom had ended. Broadly speaking, British pop was invented during the optimism of 1958 to 68, when the economy was most of the time still booming and was evolving in its fastest and most creative spirit. Then the mood turned in the later 60s and 70s towards fantasy and escapism in wider and wilder varieties, as unemployment arrived and the world seemed bleaker and more confusing. This second phase involved the sci-fi ambiguities and glamour of Bowie, the gothic, mystical hokum of the heavy bad-boy bands like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, and the druggy obscurities of Yes. The second half of the 70s were the years of deep political disillusion, strains which seemed to tear at the unity of the UK, Irish terrorism on the mainland, a rise in racial tension and widespread industrial mayhem. The optimism which had helped fuel popular culture suddenly gurgled dry. So it is not perhaps a coincidence that this period is a darker time in music and fashion, a nightmare inversion of the 60s dream. After the innocent raptures of England's 1966 World Cup victory and Manchester United's European Cup triumph two years later, 
the mid-70s, invent the modern football hooligan. And by the 80s, English clubs were being banned from European competitions because of their followers. Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren turned from creating cod 50s drape coats and beatnik jumpers to the ripped T-shirts and bondage gear of punk. The Sex Pistols portray themselves as a kind of anti-Beatles. Older musical heroes flirt with fascism. Westwood was in many ways a perfect inheritor of Quant's role a dozen years earlier. Like Quant, she was brought up to make clothes herself and came through art college. Like Quant, she had a male partner who had a touch of business genius. Like Quant, she was interested in the liberating power of clothes. Like Quant, she set herself up in the King's Road in a shop which first of all had to be braved rather than simply patronised. Her clothes would shock passers-by just as Quant's had horrified Michael Caine's mother. Like Quant, she was sardonic and fearless, and later on she out-quanted Quant as the grand dame of British fashion. Westwood received a damehood from the Queen, whose face she had famously impaled with a safety pin earlier on, and was honoured with a huge retrospective show at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Yet this daughter of a Derbyshire millweaver and a shoemaking family was also startlingly different from Quant, the Welsh teacher's child. Westwood had first mixed and matched to create a style of her own at the Manchester branch of CNA and said with only a twinge of irony, my work is rooted in English tailoring. Her vision of fashion was anything but uncluttered. It was a magpie rip it up and make it new assault on the history of couture. Postmodern to Quant's straightforward modern. And in the mid-seventies, working from a shop recently renamed simply Sex, Westwood's vision was a fetishistic, rubbery, vaguely sadomasochistic assault on mainstream decencies. Chains, zips in odd places, rips, obscene slogans and provocative images, referring, for instance, to a notorious serial rapist, all featured. She once declared that she had an inbuilt perversity, a kind of inbuilt clock which reacts against anything orthodox. Her helper and model, Jordan, a.k.a. Pamela Rook, used to set off on a commuter train to the shop wearing rubber clothes, fishnet stockings and a beehive hairdo and attracted so much attention, British Rail put her in a first-class compartment for her own protection. Quant's vision had been essentially optimistic, easy-to-wear, clean-looking clothes for free and liberated women. Westwood's vision was darker. Her clothes were to be worn like armour in the street battle with authority and repression, in the England of flashers and perverts. Nor was her then-partner Malcolm McLaren in any way like Alexander Plunkett Green, the aristocratic businessman husband of Quant. McLaren was also an art college product and, as we saw earlier, had been influenced by the radical anger of the situationists and the raw typography of King Mob. The son of a dysfunctional Jewish and Scottish family, he had drifted through the worlds of fringe politics, music and filmmaking, but was now remaking himself as a kind of wide-boy entrepreneur of street culture a latter-day Svengali modelled on Flash Larry Pans. He had already offered style advice to the New York Dolls and was on the lookout for his anti-Beatles, duly forming the Sex Pistols in December 1975. Steve Jones, Paul Cook, John Lydon and Glenn Matlock, who much admired the Beatles, were another working-class quartet in their late teens. But they expressed the self-loathing spirit of the times, as the Beatles had expressed the geeky optimism of an earlier Britain. Pop-marked, sneering, spiky-haired, exuding violence and playing with a wild and simple thrash of a sound, they dutifully performed the essential duty of shocking a still easily shocked nation. 
Their handful of good songs have a leaping energy, which really did take the aging, lumbering rock establishment by storm. But their juvenile side quickly became embarrassing. Compared to the most self-important assertions of John Lennon, their notorious performance on the London television show Thames Today with Bill Grundy was desperate stuff. Grundy, go on, you've got another ten seconds. Say something outrageous. Steve, you dirty bastard. Grundy, go on again. Steve, you dirty fucker. Grundy, what a clever boy. Steve, you fucking rotter. It leaves later satirical attempts to depict punk rockers, as in the television comedy The Young Ones, floundering. But the tabloid papers and stupider backbench MPs duly played their allotted role and helped fan the Sex Pistols' publicity engine. McLaren thrived on outrage and played up to the role of cynical charlatan for all he was worth. The Pistols played a series of increasingly wild gigs, including in the broken-up set of the bankrupt Bieber shop, Everything Connects, and made juvenile political attacks in songs such as Anarchy in the UK and in the year of the Silver Jubilee, God Save the Queen. Jim Callahan can be accused of many things, but presiding over a fascist regime is not one of them. Yet punk was the first revival of fast, belligerent, popular music to concern itself with the politics of the country, and this was the first time since the brief street-fighting man posturing of the late sixties when mainstream society needed to notice rock. On the other side of the political divide was an eruption of racist skinhead rock. And an interest in the far right. Among the rock stars who seemed to flirt with these ideas were Eric Clapton, who said in 1976 that Powell is the only bloke who's telling the truth for the good of the country, and David Bowie, who spoke of Hitler as being the first superstar, musing that perhaps he would make a good Hitler himself. Though the Sex Pistols like to see themselves as vaguely on the anarchist left. Their enthusiasm for shocking, particularly after the nihilistic and amoral Sid Vicious joined them, at least left room for ambiguity. McLaren and Westwood had produced clothing with swastikas and other Nazi emblems, if only to outrage people. It worked. While Vicious's contribution to political thought can be summed up by his lyric, "Belson was a gas I read the other day about the open graves where the Jews all lay." Reacting to the surrounding mood, Rock Against Racism was formed in August 1976, helping create the wider Anti-Nazi League a year later. Punk bands were at the forefront of the RAR movement. Above all, The Clash, whose lead singer Joe Strummer became more influential and admired than Johnny Rotten or the rest of the Sex Pistols, and bands such as The Jam. Black music, reggae, ska, and soul was popular enough among white youths for it to have had a real influence in turning the fashion and street culture decisively against racism. Ska revival bands such as the Specials and the reggae-influenced Police and UB40, the latter from the West Midlands, home of Powellism, had an effect which went beyond the odd memorable song. Hard-left politics had often been a joyless business, but the 70s produced, in the middle of visions of social breakdown, a musical revival which cheered up the lost generation. The racist skinhead oi bands found themselves in a violent and uncomfortable ghetto. As one cultural critic of the time put it, a lifestyle urban, mixed, music-loving, modern, and creative had survived, despite being under threat from the NF. The streets might be dirty and living standards falling. But it was not all bad news. Sunny Jim, stormy winter, the Callahan years. 
Jim Callahan has featured already, both as hero in Northern Ireland and as rather a villain when he stabbed Wilson and Castle in the front of a trade union reform. In the spring of 1976, he finally entered number 10 after a series of votes by Labour MPs shaved off his rivals, Dennis Healy, Tony Crossland and Roy Jenkins on the right, and Michael Foote and Tony Benn on the left. After three ballots, he beat Foote by 176 votes to 137 and replaced Wilson as Prime Minister. For three turbulent years, he would run a government with no overall majority in Parliament, kept going by deals and pacts and in an atmosphere of repeated, though not quite constant, crisis. Callaghan was by now a familiar and reassuring figure in Britain. Tall, ruddy, no-nonsense, robust and, by comparison with Wilson, straightforward. He had had all the top jobs in politics, though had not distinguished himself either as Chancellor or as Home Secretary. Latterly, he had been Foreign Secretary, deeply involved in the early stages of détente, bringing an end to the Cold War and forging close personal relations with Germany's Chancellor Helmut Schmidt, America's Henry Kissinger and the amiable but derided President Ford. At 65, he was one of the most experienced politicians to become Prime Minister. After Wilson and Heath, he was the third and last of the centrist seekers after consensus, the wartime avoiders of national confrontation. Yet behind the genial, occasionally stubborn-looking face, with its protuberant lower lip and owlish glasses, there was a man who, in the growing contest between hard left and right, was a Labour leader now instinctively looking to the right. Churchill apart, all of his post-war predecessors had been Oxbridge men. Callaghan had not been to university at all. The son of a Royal Navy chief petty officer who had died young and a devout Baptist mother from Portsmouth, he had known real poverty and had clawed his way up as a young clerk working for the Inland Revenue and then as a union official before wartime naval service. One of the 1945 generation of MPs, he was a young rebel who drifted right, though always keeping his strong pro-trade union instincts. His wounding experiences as Chancellor during the dark days of 1966 to 1967 had nearly broken him, but he had found, as the best politicians do, that what did not kill him made him stronger. He was a social conservative, uneasy about divorce, homosexuality, and vehemently pro-police, pro-monarchy, pro-armed forces, though he was anti-hanging and strongly anti-racialist too. As Home Secretary, he had announced that the Permissive Society had gone too far. As Prime Minister, he would try to initiate a great debate against trendy teaching in schools, calling for an inquiry into teaching methods, standards, discipline, and the case for a national curriculum. On the economy, he would become steadily more impressed by the case for monetarism, then raging on the right. Famously, he told a stunned 1976 Labour conference, used to the Keynesian doctrines about governments spending their way out of recession, cutting taxes and boosting investment, I tell you in all candour that that option no longer exists, and that insofar as it ever did exist, it worked by injecting inflation into the economy. Higher inflation, followed by higher unemployment. That is the history of the last 20 years. Yet, even if he could read the runes, in the national memory, Callaghan is forever associated with failure. There is the humiliating cap-in-hand begging for help from the International Monetary Fund, the soaring inflation and interest rates of the late 70s, 
And finally, the piled rubbish, vast strike meetings and unburied dead of the 1979 winter of discontent. There is an arc which plummets through earlier crises under Wilson and Heath before crashing into final chaos and destruction under Callaghan. Only after the wasteland of his time in office can the bold remaking of Britain under Margaret Thatcher begin. And Callaghan himself had been part of the problem. His sentimental failure to understand the aggression of the Union challenge to elected power and his earlier lack of interest in radical economic ideas came home to haunt him in Downing Street. But the story of the Callaghan and Healy years, for the two must be taken together, is more intriguing than its body-strewn, gore-splattered final act. It is also a story of comparative success, of wrenching inflation down again, doing the best deals with international bankers that could be done, and facing up to challenges that had been dodged for decades. It did not end well for the protagonists, but then few interesting tragedies do. Callaghan had a brutal side to him. In remaking his cabinet, he purged much of the left, leaving Michael Foote as his loyal and invaluable leader in the Commons, delivering the votes but sacking Barbara Castle as too old and too left-wing. The leader of the right, Roy Jenkins, was out too, off to take up the job of European Commissioner in Brussels. Crossland, briefly Foreign Secretary, died, so Callaghan had no serious rivals left. He responded by constructing the most right-wing Labour cabinet since the war, whose new faces included Bill Rogers, Shirley Williams and David Owen. All would later join Jenkins in the breakaway Social Democratic Party, SDP. By the standards of new Labour, after 1997, this was still a left-wing government, keen on redistribution, still describing itself as socialist, levying high rates of income tax. It believed in nationalisation, adding shipbuilding, the new oil industry and aircraft manufacture to the state's bulging holdings, and in such traditional anti-privilege issues as the abolition of pay beds in NHS hospitals. Some of its cabinet members, including Shirley Williams, joined the picket line during the violent 1977 Grunwick dispute at a film processing laboratory in London one where Asian female workers, barred from joining the union apex, had some moral right on their side, but which became a bloody mob confrontation. It is hard to imagine new Labour ministers doing the same. But by the standards of Labour's history, Callaghan's suspicion of liberalism, his admiration for American Republicans like Kissinger and Ford, his new faith in monetarism and his increasingly aggressive attitude to high pay demands, put him to the right even of Wilson. In private, he toyed with policies which would later make Mrs. Thatcher famous, such as selling off council houses. His famous and much-quoted remark to an aide, just as Labour was losing power in 1979, that the country was going through a once-in-thirty-years sea change, suggested that he half-accepted the consensus years had failed. There is a shift in what the public wants and what it approves of. I suspect there is now such a sea change, and it is for Mrs. Thatcher. About this he was right, but if, as Enoch Powell said, all political careers end in failure, then what happened before Callaghan's final failure is still an extraordinary story of despair, courage, hope, and bungled accounting. Cap in Hand Jim Callaghan's first few days as Prime Minister in April 1976 must have brought back some grim memories, 
A dozen years earlier, as Chancellor, he had been confronted with awful economic news which nearly crushed him and ended in the forced devaluation of the pound. Now, on the first day of his premiership, he was told the pound was falling fast. It had been floating since the Heath years, but this had become a euphemism. A devaluation by sterling holders was likely. The Chancellor, Dennis Healy, had negotiated the £6 pay limit and this would feed through to much lower wage increases and eventually to lower inflation. Cash limits on public spending brought in under Wilson would also radically cut public expenditure. But in the spring of 1976, inflation was still rampant and unemployment was rising fast. Healy now told Callaghan that because of the billions spent by the Bank of England supporting sterling in the first few months of the year, a loan from the International Monetary Fund looked essential. In June, standby credits were arranged with the IMF and countries such as the United States, Germany, Japan and Switzerland. What would follow was about as humiliating as peacetime politics gets. Healy had imposed tough cuts in the summer, but by its end, as he returned from a desperately needed break in the Scottish Highlands, the pound was under intense pressure again. On the 27th of September 1976, Healy was meant to fly out to a Commonwealth Finance Minister's Conference in Hong Kong with the Governor of the Bank of England. But so great was the crisis and so panicked were the markets that he decided he could not afford to be out of touch for 17 hours flying time. This was before in-flight phones. In full view of the television cameras, he turned round at Heathrow Airport and went back to the Treasury. There, he decided to apply to the IMF for a conditional loan one which gave authority to the international banking officials above Britain's elected leaders. With exquisite timing, the Ford workers began a major strike. Healy was close to collapse, to demoralisation, he later said, for the first and last time in his life. Against Callaghan's initial advice, he decided to dash to the Labour conference in Blackpool and make his case to an anguished and angry party. As we have seen, there was a powerful mood at the time for a siege economy, telling the IMF to get lost, cutting imports and nationalising swathes of industry. Given just five minutes to speak from the floor because of the absurdities of Labour conference rules, the Chancellor warned his party this would mean trade war, mass unemployment and the return of a Tory government. But, he shouted, against a rising hubbub with something of the young Major Healy who had visited the 1945 conference in battle dress, he was speaking to them from the battlefront. He would negotiate with the IMF, which would mean things we do not like as well as things we do like. It means sticking to the very painful cuts in public expenditure. It means sticking to the pay policy. As Healy ruefully recorded in his autobiography, he had begun with a background of modest cheers and a rumble of booing. When I sat down, the cheers were much louder. So were the boos. Ben called his speech vulgar and abusive. In fact, Healy's final arm clasp of triumph was a last throw by one of politics' great showmen. So, with the cabinet nervously watching, the negotiations with the IMF started. Callaghan and Healy naturally wanted to limit as far as they could the cuts being forced on them. The IMF with the US Treasury standing behind them, was under pressure to squeeze ever harder. The British side was in a horribly weak position. The government was riven by argument and threats of resignation, including from Healy. 
There were incredibly long and difficult cabinet arguments about what levels of cuts were acceptable and whether there was any real alternative in a leftist siege economy. In deepest secret, Callahan and the lead IMF negotiator from Washington had bitter private talks in which the Prime Minister warned that British democracy itself would be imperiled by mass unemployment. When it came to the very end of the tense and complicated haggling, the IMF was still calling for an extra billion pounds worth of cuts, and it was only when Healy, without telling Callaghan, threatened the international bankers with yet another who-runs-Britain election that they gave way. The final package of cuts was announced in Healy's budget, severe but not as grim as some had feared, and greeted with headlines about Britain's shame. But the truly extraordinary thing about this whole story is that it was unnecessary from the start. The cash limits Healy had already imposed on Whitehall would cut spending far more effectively than anyone realised. More startling still, the public spending statistics on which the cuts were based were wildly wrong. Public finances were stronger than they appeared. The Treasury estimate for public borrowing in 1974-75 had been too low by £4,000 million, a mistake greater than any tax changes ever made by a British Chancellor. But the 1976 estimate was twice as high as it should have been. The IMF-directed cuts were more savage than they needed to have been. As to the bloated state, another major issue of the day, the amount of Britain's wealth spent by government, was miscalculated too. A government-wide paper early in 1976 had put it at about 60%, huge by the standards of the West. But this was, as Healy put it, unforgivably misleading. When Britain's spending was defined in the same way as other countries, and at market prices, the figure fell to 46%. By the time Labour left office, it was 42%, about the same as West Germany's, and well below that of social democratic Scandinavian countries. Britain's balance of payments came back into balance long before the IMF cuts could take effect, and Healy reflected later that, if I had been given accurate forecast in 1976, I would never have needed to go to the IMF at all. In the end, only half the loan was used, all of which was repaid by the time Labour left office. Only half the standby credit was used, and it was untouched from August 1977 onwards. During the IMF negotiations, Healy had talked about sod-off day, when he and Britain would finally be free of outside control. That came far sooner than he had expected. Of course, at the time, nobody did know that Britain's finances were so much stronger than they had seemed. Yet all the lurid drama which imprinted itself on Britain's memory, the rush back from Heathrow, the dramatic scenes at the Labour conference, the humiliating arrival of the IMF hardmen, backed by Wall Street, a political thriller which destroyed Labour's self-confidence for more than a decade and which was used repeatedly in the Thatcher years as clinching evidence of its bankruptcy, all this could have been avoided. That is only the start. It was the prospect of ever greater cuts in public spending, inflation out of control, and the economy in the hands of outsiders that helped break the Labour Party into warring factions and gave the hard left its great opportunity. Had the IMF crisis not happened, would the winter of discontent and the Benite uprising have followed? Healy later said he forgave the Treasury for its mistakes in calculating public sector borrowing needs because nobody had got their forecasts right. He and they were operating in a new economic world of floating exchange rates, huge capital flows and speculation still little understood. It made him highly critical of monetarism, however, and all academic theories which depended on accurate measurement and forecasting of the money supply.
He liked to quote President Johnson, who at about this time reflected that making a speech on economics is a lot like pissing down your leg. It seems hot to you, but it never does to anyone else. Healy was bitter, though, about the Treasury's mistakes over the true scale of public spending, which so hobbled his hopes of being seen as a successful Chancellor. He said later he could not forgive them. I cannot help suspecting that Treasury officials deliberately overstated public spending in order to put pressure on governments which were reluctant to cut it. Such dishonesty for political purposes is contrary to all the proclaimed traditions of the British civil service. The Callaghan government is remembered for the IMF crisis and for the winter of discontent. His defenders point out that Callaghan actually presided over a relatively popular and successful government for more than half his time in power, some 20 months out of 37. Following the IMF affair, the pound recovered strongly, the markets recovered, inflation fell eventually to single figures, and unemployment fell too. By the middle of 1977, the year of the Queen's Silver Jubilee, North Sea oil was coming ashore to the tune of more than half a million barrels a day, a third of the country's needs. Britain would be self-sufficient in oil by 1980 and already was in gas. The pay restraint agreed earlier with Healy was still holding, though only just. The new American president, Jimmy Carter, visited for a much-praised summit. Callaghan, for the first time, was getting a good press, while the Tory opposition under Margaret Thatcher seemed to be struggling. After having to rely on an odd mixture of nationalist MPs for its precarious Commons majority, Labour entered a deal with David Steele's Liberals from March 1977 to August of the following year, giving Callaghan a secure parliamentary position for the first time. The Lib Lab Pact gave the smaller party, which then had only 13 MPs, rights only to be consulted, plus vague promises on possible voting system changes. It was much more helpful to Labour. Labour regained a modest majority over the Tories in the opinion polls, and the prospect of Callaghan and Labour continuing to govern well into the 80s looked perfectly reasonable. This did not look like a dying government, still less the end of an era. Peasants' Revolt 2. The Left We have seen the Peasants' Revolt of the right, but there was another too from the left. This would be publicly associated with Tony Benn, the face of the left in Labour's highest circles. But it was a wide and deep political force with complicated roots. The Communist Party of Great Britain had almost collapsed, so great was the disillusion with the Soviet system, to which it pledged undying and largely uncritical obedience. By the 70s, it was riven by arguments of the kind that split most declining organisations. Further left were a bewildering number of Trotskyist groups, all hostile to the Soviet Union, all claiming to be the true party of Lenin, all denouncing one another over ideological and tactical detail. They tended to be Dürer and Puritan. Only two had any real following, the Socialist Workers' Party, or SWP, and the Militant Tendency. Each had descended by political split and fusion from earlier groups which had first organised in Britain in the 40s. Militant would later cause a huge convulsion in the Labour Party. Wilson complained a lot about trots trying to take the party over, but in the 70s he was largely ignored and Militant built up strong local bases, particularly in Liverpool. The SWP, outside the Labour Party, campaigned on specific issues such as strikes and racism. Their distinctive clenched fist logo and dramatic typography appears in the background of countless industrial and political marches, pickets and rallies. 
the SWP's single biggest influence was in combating the rise of the National Front. The NF, under its tubby would-be Fuhrer Martin Webster and the bullet-headed John Tyndall, had been founded in 1967 after the original British National Party and the old League of Empire Loyalists joined together. Electorally, it was struggling, though Webster polled 16% in the West Bromwich by-election of May 1973, and in the two 1974 general elections, the NF put up first 54 and then 90 candidates, entitling them to a television broadcast. More important to their strategy were the street confrontations, engineered by marching with Union Jacks and anti-immigrant slogans through Bangladeshi or Pakistani areas in Leeds, Birmingham and London. A more extreme offshoot of the original skinheads attached themselves to the NF's racialist policies, and by the mid-70s they too were on the march. The SWP determined to organise street politics of their own and bring things to a halt and formed the Anti-Nazi League in 1977. The League drew in tens of thousands of people who had no particular interest in the obscurities of Leninist revolutionary theory, but who saw the NF as a genuine threat to the new immigrant communities. And the young flooded to their rallies, marches and confrontations, during which there were a couple of deaths as the police weighed in to protect the National Front's right to march. Beyond Militant and the SWP, other far-left groups inside and outside the Labour Party would achieve brief notoriety because they were supported by a famous actress, such as Vanessa Redgrave, or through influence in a local party or borough. Eventually, the loony left would come to the boil, enjoying enough influence, particularly in London, to shred Labour's credibility. But in the 70s, this was still a slowly developing, obscure story. Much more important then was the influence of socialists who were not working for secretive Trotskyist or communist parties, but had simply wanted to bring down Wilson and were now gunning for Callaghan and his friends. Like Thatcher and Joseph, they believed the old consensus politics was failing. Some of their thinking was also shared by the right. They were mostly hostile to the European community, for example, opposed Scottish and Welsh nationalism, and were hostile to America. But that was where the similarities ended. The answer was to make them accountable to ordinary people, as the obsessive meeting attenders of Labour politics innocently believed themselves to be. So, the siege economy or alternative economic strategy and mandatory reselection of MPs became the two main planks of the left. Tony Benn became the voice and leader of Labour's Peasants' Revolt. His enthusiasm for workers' cooperatives and a national enterprise board had already made him a figure of ridicule in Fleet Street. Later, he would become a kind of revered national grandfather, a white-haired, humorous sage whose wry memories of Attlee and Wilson would transfix audiences of all ages and views. His unbending hostility to nuclear weapons, American and British war-making, and market capitalism would inspire hundreds of thousands deep into the years of new labour. But between the eager beaver Anthony Wedgwood-Ben, champion of Concord, and the paternal Grandpa Tony, came the turbulent years of Benism, the central phase of his political life. Radicalised by his children towards the politics of feminism, anti-nuclear campaigning, and much else, he became increasingly detached from his colleagues as the Wilson-Callaghan government staggered towards collapse. Ben had come close to leaving it over his opposition to Labour's deal with the Liberals, and he fell out badly with the other notably left-wing cabinet minister, Michael Foote, over parliamentary tactics on Europe. 
His general attitude to the party is well caught by his diary entry for the 15th of January 1978. The whole Labour leadership now is totally demoralised and all the growth on the left is going to come up from the outside and underneath. This is the death of the Labour Party. It believes in nothing anymore except staying in power. Ben was in the curious position of still being a senior member of the government when he wrote this, attending intimate gatherings at Chequers, hobnobbing with visiting Americans, hearing deep military and security secrets, while at the same time growing the eyes and ears of an outsider. He was on the side of the strikers who brought much of the country to a halt, and his new friend Arthur Scargill, the miners' leader, was telling Ben he could be the next Labour leader himself. Though it seemed a fantasy in 1978, within a few years Ben would come within a hair's breadth of winning the deputy leadership on a left-wing socialist ticket, during the middle of a vicious and deeply damaging Labour civil war. Then was the winter of their discontent. The winter of discontent, a Shakespearean phrase, was used by Callaghan himself to describe the industrial and social chaos of 1978-79. It is stuck in people's memories, as few political events do. The schools closed, the ports blockaded, the rubbish rotting in the streets, the dead unburied. Actions by individual union branches and shop stewards were reckless and heartless. Left-wing union leaders and activists whipped up the disputes for their own purposes. Right-wing newspapers, desperate to see the end of Labour, exaggerated the effects and rammed home the picture of a nation no longer governable. But much of the fault for this was Callaghan's. It was not just that he had opposed the legal restrictions on union power pleaded for by Wilson and Castle and then fought for vainly by Heath. It was not even that he and Healy, acting in good faith, had imposed a more drastic squeeze on public spending and thus on the poorest families than was economically necessary. Though none of that helped. It was also that by trying to impose an unreasonably tough new pay limit on the country, and then by dithering about the date of the election, he destroyed the fragile calm he had so greatly enjoyed. Most people, including most of the cabinet, had assumed that Callaghan would call a general election in the autumn of 1978. The economic news was still good. Labour was ahead in the polls. Two dates in October had already been pencilled in, though the 12th of October had been ruled out because it was Margaret Thatcher's birthday. But Callaghan, musing at his Sussex farm during the summer, decided that he did not trust the polls. He would wait, soldiering on until the spring. When the Prime Minister invited half a dozen trade union leaders to his farm to discuss the election, they left still thinking he was going in the autumn. Then, at the TUC conference, with the world agog for an announcement, Callaghan sang a verse from an old music hall song, originally by Vesta Victoria. There was I, waiting at the church, waiting at the church, waiting at the church, when I found he'd left me in the lurch, Lord, how it did upset me. All at once he sent me round a note. Here's the very note. This is what he wrote. Can't get away to marry you today. My wife won't let me. While a good enough song in its day, it was hardly a clear message to Britain. Was the jilted bride Mrs. Thatcher? The trade union movement? Callaghan's intention was to suggest that he was delaying the election, but many trade union leaders and newspaper correspondents assumed just the opposite. When he finally came clean to the cabinet... They were shocked. This might not have mattered so much had Callaghan not also promised a new 5% pay limit to bring inflation down further. 
Because of the 1974 to 75 cash limit on pay rises at a time of high inflation, take-home pay for most people had been falling. Public sector workers had had a particularly hard time. There were the inevitable stories of fat cat directors and bosses awarding themselves high settlements. The union leaders and many ministers thought that a further period of pay limits would be impossible to sell, while a 5% limit, which appears to have come from Callaghan almost off the cuff, was widely considered to be ludicrously tough. Had Callaghan gone to the country in October, then the promise of further pay restraint might have helped boost Labour's popularity, while the unions could have comforted themselves with the thought that it was probably mere window dressing. By delaying the election until the following spring, Callaghan ensured that his 5% would be tested in Britain's increasingly impatient and dangerous industrial relations market. First up, almost as soon as Callaghan had finished his music hall turn, were the 57,000 car workers employed by Ford, the US giant. The Transport and General Workers Union called not for 5%, but for 30% on the back of high profits, and, it has to be said, an 80% pay rise just awarded to Ford's chairman. Callaghan was badly embarrassed. His son, as it happened, worked for the company, and when after five weeks of lost production Ford eventually settled for 17%, he became convinced he would lose the coming election. There was a veil of tears to be endured first. Oil tanker drivers, also in the TGWU, came out for 40%, and were followed by road haulage drivers, workers at Ford's nationalised rival British Leyland, then water and sewerage workers. BBC electricians threatened a blackout of Christmas television. The docks were picketed and closed down. Blazing braziers, surrounded by huddled figures in woolly hats, with snow whirling round them, were shown nightly on the television news. Hull, virtually cut off, was known as the Second Stalingrad. The effects were felt directly by ministers along with the rest of the country. Bill Rogers, the transport minister, whose mother was dying of cancer, found that vital chemotherapy chemicals were not being allowed out of Hull. Later, when the health secretary David Ennels was admitted to Westminster Hospital, the local shop steward announced gleefully that he was a legitimate target for action. He won't get the little extras our members provide patients. He won't get his locker cleaned or the area around his bed tidied up. He won't get tea or soup. In the middle of it all, Callaghan went off for an international summit on the Caribbean island of Guadeloupe, staying on for talks and sightseeing in Barbados. Pictures of him swimming and sunning himself did not improve the national mood. When he returned to Heathrow, confronted by news reporters asking about the industrial crisis, he replied blandly, I don't think other people in the world will share the view that there is mounting chaos. This was famously translated by the Daily Mail and then the Sun into Crisis? What crisis? The nation's mood grew no sunnier. As the railwaymen prepared to join the strikes, the worst blow for the government came from the public sector union, Newpy, who called out more than a million school caretakers, cooks, ambulance men, refuse collectors on random stoppages for a £60 a week guaranteed minimum wage. Strikes by car workers were one thing, but now the public was being hit directly, and the most vulnerable were being hit the hardest. Children's hospitals, old people's homes and schools were all plunged into trouble. The single most notorious action was by the Liverpool Parks and Cemeteries branch of the General and Municipal Workers' Union, 
who refused to bury dead bodies, leaving more than 300 to pile up in a cold storage depot and a disused factory, and Liverpool Council to discuss emergency plans for disposing of some corpses at sea. Funeral cortege were met at the cemeteries by pickets and forced to turn back. Strikers were confronted in local pubs and thumped. In the centre of London and other major cities, huge piles of rotting rubbish piled up, overrun with rats and a serious health hazard. Inside government, ordinary work almost ground to a halt. It must be recorded that most of those striking, the public sector workers in particular, were woefully badly paid and living in relative poverty, and that they had no history of industrial militancy. Nor was the crisis quite as dreadful as some of the papers and politicians showed it. As with Heath's three-day week, many people gleefully enjoyed the enforced holiday from their public sector jobs. Nobody was proved to have died in hospital as a result of union action. There was no shortage of food in the shops, and there was no violence. Troops were never used. This was chaos, and a direct challenge to the authority of the government. It was not a revolution, or an attempt to overthrow a government. Yet that is the effect it had. The revolution would bring in Thatcherism, not socialism, and Labour would be overthrown, plunging quickly into civil war. A St. Valentine's Day Concordat was eventually unveiled between the government and the TUC, talking of annual assessments and guidance, targeting long-term inflation, virtually admitting that the 5% limit had been a mistake. After all the drama, it was a fig leaf so thin and ragged it was barely worth holding up. By March, most of the action had ended, and various large settlements and inquiries had been set up. But, in the Commons, the government was running out of allies, spirit and hope. The failure of the referendum on Scottish devolution meant that under previously agreed rules, the Act would have to be repealed. This, in turn, gave the Scottish Nationalists no reason to continue supporting Labour. The Liberals, facing the highly embarrassing trial of Jeremy Thorpe for conspiracy to murder, he would later be acquitted, had their own reasons for wanting an early election. In the drink-sodden, conspiracy-ridden, frenetic atmosphere of an exhausted Parliament, in which dying MPs had been carried through the lobbies to keep the government afloat, final attempts were made by Michael Foote and the Labour whips to find some kind of majority. Ulster Unionists, Irish Nationalists, Renegade Scots were all approached. Callaghan, by now, was in a calmly fatalistic mood. He did not want to struggle on through another summer and autumn. Finally, on the 28th of March, 1979, the game ended when the government was defeated by a single vote, brought down at last by a ragged coalition of Tories, Liberals, Scottish Nationalists and Ulster Unionists. Callaghan was the first Prime Minister since 1924 to have to go to Buckingham Palace and ask for a dissolution of Parliament because he had lost a vote in the Commons. The five-week election campaign started after the Irish assassination of Mrs Thatcher's wily leadership campaign manager, the Tory MP, Airy Neave, murdered by a car bomb on his way into the Commons underground car park. On the Labour side, it was dominated by Callaghan, still more popular than his party, who emphasised stable prices and his deal with the unions, if such it was. On the Tory side, Thatcher showed a new media savvy, working with the television news teams and taking the advice of her advertising gurus, the Saatchis. Callaghan, who had never expected to win, was soundly beaten. The Conservatives took 61 seats directly from Labour, gaining nearly 43% of the vote, 
and a substantial overall majority, with 339 seats. What of the players in the last act of old labour and the broken consensus? Callaghan would stumble on as leader before retiring in October 1980. Healy would fight a desperate struggle against the left, as his party did its level best to commit suicide in public. Numerous moderates would form the breakaway SDP. The Scottish Nationalists, derided by Callaghan when they voted him down as Turkeys voting for Christmas, lost 11 of their 13 MPs. The unions would eventually lose almost half their members and any political influence they briefly enjoyed. More important than all that, mass unemployment would arrive in Britain. The one economic medicine so bitter that no minister in the 70s had thought of trying it was duly uncorked and poured into the spoon. It was time for Britain to grimace and open her mouth. End of Disc 14